Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to First Baptist Rocky Top. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. This morning, we're going to continue through Acts, and we're going to be in Acts chapter 13, part two of a message that we started last week. Last week, you may remember that in those opening few verses of Acts chapter 13, we talked about the commissioning of the first missionary journey. And the early church fasted and they prayed and they selected Barnabas and Paul who were going to go on the first missionary journey. We really just looked at the first few verses there. And today we're going to look at a larger story about some of the events that happened on that first missionary journey. So we had the first commissioning of the missionaries. And here we're going to look at the very first recorded sermon of the Apostle Paul. So there continues to be kind of this series of firsts that are taking place in the early Christian church. And in fact, if we had a time of sharing as a congregation, and I asked you to share a moment that was a first for you, many of you would have a lot of incredible fun and enlightening stories. Maybe the first time you tried some kind of strange food like sushi or sardines or chicken liver or potted meat. Maybe you remember your first day of school in kindergarten or preschool, or maybe your first day at a new school. For those of you who have moved around, maybe your first day at a new job, your first time flying on a plane, your first time being behind the wheel of a car all by yourself after getting your driver's license, and then more significant moments like your first child. You know, I vividly, like you, recall several significant moments in my life. And I think, first of all, of our wedding day as one of the most significant moments, a wonderful day with family and friends. In fact, we were married right here at First Baptist, and afterward, we went to Main Street Church to have our reception. And after all the fanfare started to settle, and Charity and I were preparing to leave on our honeymoon, I went into the restroom there at Main Street to change out of the clothes that I had wore at the wedding into something predictably more comfortable. It was the middle of July, or was in July. And I remember looking at myself in the mirror, and I had the strangest feeling that bubbled up from somewhere deep within me. And I just remember looking at myself and thinking, I am a married man. And although it may sound odd, it wasn't a bad feeling at all. It was almost an overwhelming feeling of, you know, wow, I finally did this, and my life will never be the same. And then I recall the day my firstborn son, Luke, was born. Charity and I had worked a school Christmas dance on a Thursday night, and as we were pulling out, I didn't stop at the stop sign, leaving the middle school, and as a result of that, I was pulled over by the police, but I played the teacher card, as I often do, and managed to get out of that one with the nice officer, and we arrived home very late that night. We were very tired, and we went straight to bed, and around four in the morning on December 21st, Charity poked me and said the words that all of us could probably predict that she would say, she said, I think I'm in labor. And she was, with contractions closely following one another. We called the doctor, we scrambled some things together, and then we headed out on the road. And as I say, it was December 21st, and it was snowing as we pulled out of the house. It was bitterly cold. We arrived at the birthing center, and just a few hours later, at 1221 on 1221, Luke was born. And some of you are getting well acquainted with Luke, so it will be no surprise to tell you that within a few minutes, he had his eyes opened, looking around, deeply interested in everything that was going on. He was just this sweet 7-pound, 11-ounce baby boy. And as any parent will tell you, the love and joy in your heart grows greater than you would ever dream possible when you have your children. And 
Noah Lynn, not to be left out, our second son, he was his birth was equally special with one major difference. Unlike Luke, Noah Lynn was a chunky, squishy, nine-pound, ten-ounce child. He came out with a beard and a job. He was a big baby. But it was a wonderful and special time, and maybe we, you all can share some of your special stories with me. And, you know, we started again in Acts 13 last week. It was the story of the First Commission journey. We focused on the call and the process of the first missionaries, which were Barnabas and Paul, and how the church prayed and fasted for this monumental moment. And today we're going to look at the first encounters these missionaries had as they started to take the gospel to the world, as well as a first recorded sermon for the Apostle Paul. So this is Acts 13, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 6. And first, I'm going to read down through verse 12. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all unrighteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Before I go any further, I need to correct myself. He was the enemy of all righteousness, this magician, Elamos. So now this story we'll hear will be more of a bonus story for what we will study here in just a moment. But it's worth mentioning, Barnabas and Paul find themselves on the island of Cyprus. It was in the Mediterranean Sea, and it's now a place called Salamis. And Salamis was near the modern city of Famagusta, and there was a significant presence of Jews in this area. And you may recall, as we'll see a couple of times today, that Paul had the habit of taking the gospel first to the Jews and then to the Gentiles. Paul followed this model. We'll look at that more in detail in a second. Now, we're quickly introduced to a magician, a sorcerer, named Bar-Jesus. Now, a couple of things here. Some translations read magician. Others read sorcerer, but the bottom line is this. This was a big, bad no-no in Jewish culture, which is why we immediately read that this man was a Jewish false prophet. And in fact, while the occult was not uncommon during these times, finding a Jew, a Jewish person that was part of the occult in these mystical things was very untypical because it was so strictly forbidden in the Old Testament law. In fact, according to Jewish law, dabbling in these sorts of things was punishable by death. It was, again, strictly forbidden and was to be taken very seriously. Now, secondly, this man's name, Bar-Jesus, people always have questions about it. Bar-Jesus, anytime you see Bar in front of a Hebrew name, it serves as somewhat of a prefix that means son of. For instance, Barnabas, who was on the missionary journey with Paul, we learned last week, his name means son of encouragement, which was a nickname given to him by the apostles. But it often served a more technical meaning as well. So, for instance, Bar-Jonah would mean son of Jonah. Bar-Timaeus, son of Timaeus. So, interestingly, 
Barabbas, who you might recall from the Gospels, who was selected by the crowd to be released instead of Jesus, when Pilate brought both Jesus and Barabbas before the crowd, his name just meant son of a father, son of a dad, meaning that it was unlikely anyone actually knew who his father was. It was, if you will, a generic name. But by extension, we are all the child of some father, and Jesus died for all. So even in that moment, a great truth was revealed in Barabbas' name. So here Bar-Jesus would have been the son of Jesus, or the son of Joshua, which is the Hebrew version of Jesus. It means son or savior. And so Luke tells us that he was also called Elimus, which likely meant magician. And you see Luke kind of transitioning to using that word. Now, to be clear, this name was not meant to relate to Jesus Christ, as we might think, but Paul does something clever with it in just a moment. So thirdly, what we as Christians, what should we think? What should we make of things of this nature, the sorcery and the occult? It does still exist. So how do we handle it? And I like what C.S. Lewis has to say on the matter. He said that people either disregard demonic things as utter foolishness and believe that it doesn't exist at all, or they have far too much interest in it. And so the biblical teaching here acknowledges, in fact, that it does exist. And as Christians, we are to have nothing to do with it. Paul talks about this in Galatians chapter 5. And so there was this person named Sergius Paulus who became interested in the gospel Paul and Barnabas was proclaiming. But this sorcerer gets in the way. And he begins to draw Sergius Paulus away from the truth. And may I say, is just a simple application here. When we're doing the work of the Lord, there's always going to be battles, always obstacles and opposition that the devil throws in the way to stifle the work of the Lord. And that is precisely what is happening here with Paul. The gospel of Jesus Christ is penetrating. A person is on the verge of belief. And the spiritual warfare to stifle that work is in full force. And Paul deals with this sorcerer in an interesting way. Luke says Paul looked at him full of the Holy Spirit and said, now, before I repeat what he said, we've heard versions of this before. You know, we might talk to someone and we may say, that woman is just so full of the Spirit. I was talking with such and so, and I had felt so full of the Spirit, and I said something just so kind and so sweet and so encouraging, or someone said that to me. We usually expect someone to say something really, really nice and loving and comfy and cozy and fond, fond and kind. Maybe give us a nice berry pie or something. But Paul says, you son of the devil. That's what I mean when he did something clever, not son of the Savior. He's, he's doing a play on words here. He says, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And then Paul causes Elymas, the sorcerer, to go blind. Paul called it like it was, and I think that that can be some good advice for us today. We don't celebrate sin, we don't condone it, but we do speak the truth in love. Speaking truth is the most loving thing a person can do, and the result of this leads to the salvation of a soul. Sergius Paulus is saved because he saw the power of God. Now, if Paul had said something to the effect of, you know what, Elymas, you believe your truth, and I will believe mine. You do you whatever makes you happy. 
Well, this would have had a completely different outcome, an eternally different outcome. One, Elimas would have continued in wickedness, unchecked and unabated, and Sergius Paulus would not have been saved here. He would have remained lost. We must speak the truth in love if we are expected to see people come to faith, true faith, in Jesus Christ. So now let's dive deeper into this story. Beginning in Acts chapter 13, still uh, in Acts 13, I should say, in verse 13, let's get into this first sermon of Paul. So here we read, And on the Sabbath day they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, now we're going to pause, the next section we find Barnabas and Paul in a different area known as Antioch and Pisidia. Now Antioch comes from the name Antiochus and there were lots of city names that had the same name and that can get a little confusing. So this was a different Antioch than what we initially started with when we talked about this missionary journey. And it's here again that Paul gives his first recorded sermon. And recall that Paul's pattern, once more, is in sharing the gospel of Jesus in these new areas was to go to the synagogues first. He had the fundamental belief that the gospel was to go first to the Jewish people. In fact, in his letter to the church at Rome, Romans 1.16, he says, The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, while I won't claim that hundreds of people have asked me this question, this does become a point of interest for a lot of people. What does Paul mean here to the Jew first? Well, I think for us looking at the whole story of Scripture and understanding the Hebrew people, the Israelite people, the Jewish people, those are all synonyms for the same group of people, here's what it means. They are the historic chosen people of God. They are the guardians of God's special revelation, which was the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. The Messiah, the Savior, Jesus, comes to the world as a Jew to the Jews. Salvation is from the Jews, since everyone who is saved is saved by being connected with the covenant with Abraham that was made way back in Genesis by faith. And the Jews are to be evangelized first when the gospel penetrates a new region. This was Paul's belief. This was what he followed. But, and this is a really big but, if you'll mind some juvenile humor, the Jews did not have any righteousness or religious bragging rights over anyone else. There is no difference in how they are saved by the forgiveness of sins and Jesus' redeeming work on the cross and resurrection. Both Jews and Gentiles are exactly the same in God's blessing. Paul elaborates on this, and he teaches this in Ephesians 3.6. He says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Instead, and indeed, one of the biggest Jewish frustrations with Jesus and Paul and the preaching, and the other early church preaching, was that Jews did not receive special treatment. And the Gentiles were being grafted in, if you will, to God's marvelous covenant promises of salvation. And in this synagogue, Paul was given an opportunity to speak. So during Jewish services or liturgies, they would all start with, with what is called the Shema. Now, Shema is Hebrew for hear, hear, H-E-A-R, as with your ears, hear with your ears. And it was the, the key Jewish belief for centuries 
that had distinguished the Jewish people from other religious groups and nations. This was the Shema. It comes from Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So Paul here was a visiting rabbi and he had been trained extensively as a Pharisee. So he was given an opportunity to share, and boy does Paul share here. So he motions with his hand to get their attention, and he beckons them to listen. Now, it's interesting, and it's helpful, because this message given by Paul seems to have been recorded by Luke in its entirety, and it's helpful for us because it follows an outline that we too can use when sharing the gospel. So Paul begins by talking about the anticipation of the Messiah in Jewish history followed by the action of the Messiah's arrival and his death and his resurrection, and then an application and appeal to the crowd to accept this great and marvelous true message of salvation. So in this anticipation, there's a lot here, and I'm not going to read every verse, but I would encourage you to go back in your own time and do that. So in this sermon that Paul gives, he talks about the choosing of Abraham, the growth of the nation under Egyptian bondage, the deliverance of the Hebrews, from the Egyptians, then the wandering of 40 years in the wilderness, the giving of the promised land, which will become the land of Israel, the time of the judges, and then the arrival of King David, who we are reminded here in this scripture was a man after God's own heart. Now, as Paul does this, Jews liked this sort of thing. It was a big part of their services and their worship. It was called historical retrospection. If we're all honest, we all kind of like this. No matter what age that we are, we kind of like to recall and talk about these fond memories and all the better and all the more glorious and edifying when it's the fond memories of how God has worked in our lives. And so it can be very profitable and edifying to examine how God has worked in the past and how he used people and groups of people for his kingdom work. There's nothing wrong with this at all. Now, then he makes, Paul does, the connection that Jesus comes through the lineage of, G of David and he talks about the work of Jesus. And it takes Paul about seven sentences here to get to Jesus. This is Acts 13, verse 26. He said, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God. Those would have been the Gentiles. So he's talking to Jews and Gentiles here. To us it has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him or understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news, that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus. And we'll pause right there, and I will just say this. In Christ, you must have the cross and the resurrection. In faith in Christ, you must have the cross and the resurrection. You can't have one without the other.
And Paul presents this to them brilliantly. He says, and I'm paraphrasing a little, he says, look, you come here to the synagogue every week and you hear and learn from the wonderful scriptures. Well, guess what? The scriptures point to and speak of Jesus. That's what the entire Old Testament is about. And he goes on down in Acts 38. He says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So we have the atoning death of Jesus and confirmation that he is the Son of God by the resurrection and his victory over death. And Paul says something profound here. You have been freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. You know, in the future, I want to do a series on the Old Testament law because in it and through it, we learn so much about Jesus. But the law is marvelous, but it didn't bring righteousness or forgiveness of sins. It did not bring salvation. However, it did show humanity, our fallen nature, and our need for a Savior. The law, if you will, and to explain what I'm talking about, largely I just mean the first five books of the Hebrew Bible, the law to personify it. It did its job. It was a mirror to humanity. We may look at a mirror and we may not like what we see, but the mirror is doing its job. We can't get mad at the mirror. And the law was a mirror showing us our sinful nature. And Paul says a few more things, masterfully quoting Old Testament scriptures, but things move pretty quickly at this point. As they went out, this is verse 42, as they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them to the next Sabbath. So there's this group that begs Paul and Barnabas to come back, but there's also a group that worked to stir up division. So we read in verse 44, and I'm going to hop around here a little bit to save time. Verse 44, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary for the word of God to be spoken first to you, but since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, the day we are turning to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. 51. Paul and Barnabas, they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And again, tragically, we hear we see the Jews largely rejecting, rejecting the gospel and the Gentiles accepting it. But as Paul and Barnabas leave, we read that they shook the dust off their feet. That may seem kind of odd. It was somewhat of an idiom, though they may have done it literally despite the figure of speech. It was a symbolic way to say we tried and you rejected us. So this dust from your town that is on our feet, we are shaking it off and we are leaving it behind. It was a powerful object lesson to the hardness of heart to some of those that they encountered. And the next bit is just a single verse I want to share from Acts 14.1 to close out this section. And then we're going to look at some uh, truths here, some takeaways. It says, Now at Iconium, they, Paul and Barnabas, entered together into the Jewish synagogue and spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So as always, I like to kind of wrap this up with 
some takeaways? What are some applications? What have we learned from this that we can model our Christian lives afterward? And the first thing is this, share the gospel that leads to belief. Share the gospel that leads to belief. Now, this may sound like an odd way to frame it, but what I just read there in Acts 14.1, we read that they spoke in such a way that a great number of both Jews and Greeks believed. So this would imply, of course, that there's a way to speak in which people don't believe. Now, if you will allow me, I'm going to share some of my personal thoughts on communicating what we believe. I'll just be frank with you. I'm not a big fan of elevator speeches and sharing the gospel where people take maybe 30 seconds to give a gospel presentation that they believe leads someone to Jesus Christ. I'm not a big fan of gimmicks in sharing the gospel. I'm not a big fan of bait and switch tactics. I believe we share the authentic, pure, unadulterated word of God. What was Jesus's model? What was Paul's model? What was the model of the early church? They shared the total arc of scripture. They built relationships with the people they ministered to, and they were willing to stay for extended periods of time with people and people groups, and then return to them later to follow up and continue to disciple them. I like what author Bill Hull has to say on this topic. He says, at times by reducing the gospel story of God's work from Genesis to Revelation to a packaged three or four points with a prayer, we have diminished our understanding of salvation and what it means to be a follower of Christ. This shift from gospel culture to salvation culture has weakened the church, diminished the lives of Christians, and made disciple-making difficult. I could not agree with Mr. Hall more. Jesus and his work is the focus. The cornerstone. There was a reason for this illustration. We see this several times. Christ is referred to as the chief cornerstone. And Paul elaborates on this in Ephesians. He said, Fellow citizens of God's people and members of God's household are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. The Bible describes Jesus as the cornerstone that his church would be built on. He is foundational. Once the cornerstone was set, it became the basis for determining every measurement in the remaining construction. Everything was aligned to it. As the cornerstone of the building of the church, Jesus is our standard for measure and alignment. And then secondly, and finally actually, Paul knew his audience. And you and I, we need to know and understand who we are trying to reach. Let's talk just a little bit about the Rocky Top community, a community that's near and dear to me, a community I love, and I know I share that love with so many of you here at First Baptist. It's the community that we're in, the community God has placed us to minister to. And the city limits of Rocky Top, according to the most recent U.S. Census data and population projections, there are 1,728 people in Rocky Top, Tennessee. In Anderson County, there are 78,913 people. But now get this. Several years ago, a Christian mission board commissioned a study on the religious beliefs and practices of this area. 75 to 80% from what they were able to conclude, 75 to 80% of folks in this area were un either unsaved or unchurched. Now, if this is accurate, over 59,000 people 
and Anderson County are unsaved or unchurched, and in Rocky Top, 1,342. Now, these statistics are older, but I'm going to tell you this. I didn't buy it at first. Did not believe this. But the longer I've been in the schools, working with the community, working with the families of the community, and if you'll pardon a moment of vanity, I think few people have done that as much as what Charity and I have in this area. And I know many of you have done that as well and could testify to this as well. But working with so many students and families, I've come to see that these numbers are reflective, in fact, of the mission field in which we serve. And I want to add more to it. And that what I want to add is this, that granted, if we walked around to every single house in Rocky Top, Tennessee, and we engaged with every single family, here's what I think you would find. And I'm fully confident of this. If we ask them just a series of questions in this order, one, do you believe in God? The response, yes, oh yes, 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 I believe in God. Probably 98% or more of people would say that. Second question, do you believe in Jesus? Yes, yes, oh yes, yes, I believe in Jesus. Again, probably in the high 90s percentage-wise of people that would say that they do. But then with the final questions, the concern starts. Sir or ma'am, was there a time in your life that you trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Probably, I've seen this happen. They start looking around, playing in the dirt with their foot. The response, yeah, I think so. You know, I went to Bible school once. I remember saying this prayer that somebody helped me say. You know, I've been a pretty good person. Okay, are you active in a church? And this is where it drops off a cliff. No, no, I'm not. You know, I... No, I should be, but we're just so busy with work, with sports, with life. I've been sick, all these things. And then I used to go, but something happened that really, really hurt. Now, why do I take time to go through this both technically and anecdotally? The reason is this, because these people are people God has commanded us to reach and to make disciples of. We need to know that there is a hesitation about coming to church. And now, it may be true that most of the time it's unwarranted, or it may be a straw man excuse, but we still need to listen to these people, to mend broken ties, broken relationships, and to work down the barriers, to work to take down the barriers that keep them from coming. And most of all, love them and share the truth of Jesus Christ in love. As we read, I know that we have an image of what these people look like in our minds. Paul, Barnabas, Elimas, the Jews sitting around in the synagogues, the Gentiles, eagerly hearing the message of Christ. The Bible provides very little in the way of Paul's physical appearance, but there is an extra-biblical source that gives us some insight. There's an old Syriac text from the 2nd century that gives a description of Paul. It says he was a man of middling size and his hair was scanty. His legs were a little crooked and his knees were projecting. He had large eyes and his eyebrows met. And his nose was somewhat long and he was full of grace and mercy. At one time, he seemed like a man and another time, he seemed like an angel. Going bald, bow-legged, pointy knees and his eyebrows met. And I think we probably know that that means he had a unibrow. He was nothing impressive physically. But Paul turned the world upside down because he was not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
The Holy Spirit had empowered the church. The Holy Spirit set aside Barnabas and Paul for their missionary journey. And here, in this first message we have of Paul, the end result we are given of those who heard it is, they begin rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. That's the joy set before us as we seek to serve our Lord and be obedient to him. Pray with me, if you will. Heavenly Father, this week, many in this church have had their own times of fasting and prayer, and we know that you have heard those prayers, and thank you, God, for that. Our hearts are deeply burdened for the people of Rocky Top. Please call them to salvation, dear God. Please draw them into our fellowship here at First Baptist Church and use us to love them, to minister to them, to share your truth with them. Burden us, convict us, and then equip us to do your kingdom work. In Jesus' name, amen.